Marriage D, take one. We've been married for 40 years, but who's counting? And for 40 years, we've been making these adorable little resolutions. And my first resolution this year is to let Frank be a better husband. This year, I resolve not to do these resolutions anymore. I've resolved to no longer feel disappointed. And I'm okay with the fact that Frank is not the man he used to be. I just mean that going to the gym is hard, and me being okay with the fact that you're never going to go again, ever, makes it easier. I have a bad back. Well, that doesn't get you out of everything. What does that mean? Nothing, nothing at all. I think last year Frank made a resolution to believe that everything in the house fixes itself. This year my biggest resolution is to make Betty think people actually like her cooking. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's funny because this year I'm resolved to let you do your own cooking. What? Yeah, I'm going to be a big enough woman to let you be your own man. But I'm not my own man. And I'm resolved to be okay with that. But I, I like your cooking. You do? Of course I do. Have I, have I ever said I didn't like your cooking? Yeah, just now. I said people. I, I didn't say me. Well, do you like it? You never told me that. Then this year I resolved to tell you how much I appreciate your cooking. Well, look at you. One for three. <laughs> I love you. Mm, I love you too. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you think you could resolve to brush your teeth after you drink the coffee? Mm, yeah, if you could resolve to stop burning every pile. All right, I want you all to help me out here just a moment. Every one of you who has ever made a New Year's resolution in your life, I want you to stand. Ever made a New Year's resolution in your lifetime, I want you to stand. All right. If you have ever broken a New Year's resolution in your lifetime, I want you to sit down. <laughs> Joy. <laughs> How many of you have ever told a lie in your lifetime? <laughs> Joy. Forty-five percent of our fellow Americans will make a resolution for 2013. Fifty-five percent of our fellow Americans won't even try because they know they're not going to keep it. Eight percent of those 45 percent that make a resolution will actually keep the resolution. And I'm sure that we start out well and we mean well, and whatever has motivated us, we make these New Year's resolutions, and then three months into the year, three weeks into the year, three days into the year, three hours into the year, we break it. And then we live the rest of the year with regret. This morning, our message is on getting past the past. 
And it's something that I dare say, it's one of these no-brainer messages in that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to connect with a lot of people. Because there are many people today who are living with regrets of their past. The definition of regret very simply means to be sorry for. Resolution in its basest form simply means the act of determining. And this morning we're going to understand the difference between regret and repentance. But many of you here, if we had opportunity and it could be anonymous, you would list numerous regrets that you are living with in your past. You never understood how to get past it. You've never understood how to deal with it. You've never understood just really what this whole repentance thing means and how that Jesus comes along and wipes out our past. And honestly, there are some people who are living with regrets of their past simply because they want to. That, that has become their identity. Woe is me because of what has happened to me in the past. If we're going to look for a future in 2013, if we're expecting something great to happen in our lives in the coming year, if we're looking forward to God doing some exciting things in our life in the future, we're going to have to leave the past behind. This Christmas, I don't know how many of you watched Christmas stories, but we watched a number of Christmas stories. I think the actual, the Christmas story, we watched probably four times. When you got grandkids, you do that. They, they watch it and they go off and play and they want to come in and watch it. So we watched a lot of Christmas stories. But if any of you happen to watch <clears throat> The Christmas Carol, you remember the story of a guy by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. And in the sequence of that story, the ghost of Christmas past comes and takes Ebenezer Scrooge unwillingly back to his younger years. And he sees this beautiful young lady that he had fallen in love with. But consequently, she ended up breaking off the engagement because Ebenezer loved his money more than he did his girl. And when you look at that story, you can see the emotions on his face as he's watching what may could have been if he had married this lady. And just perhaps he would have not ended up being this miser of a Scrooge that he was depicted as in the Christmas Carol. You see, we all have regrets. And I ask you this morning, what would you think about the ghost of our past coming and taking us back and revisiting all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our foolish choices that have shaped our life? It wouldn't be a pleasant journey. And none of us want to go back and revisit those things in our past. And yet, we don't need the ghost of our past to come because, honestly, we do it to ourselves. We do it to ourselves. 
we stop and there are times in our lives that we look at the regrets that we have experienced. It could be triggered by a memory. It could be triggered by a person. It could be triggered by something someone has done to us. We could have experienced regret over our marriage. I'm not asking for a show of hands this morning, but this has happened. I know it's happened because I've been a part of the conversation. But sitting here in this building today, only between you and God, you probably at some time or another, some of us anyway, you have thought, if I had only not married this man. Somebody just broke out laughing. You're in deep trouble. If I had only not married this woman, if I had only knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have married this person, but we did, and we have children, and life goes on, and you're still living with the regret. Some of us here today are living with the regrets of how we raised our children. But can I tell you this? You can't go back and undo yesterday. It just doesn't happen. And Barbara and I, we've talked about raising our boys, and, and God has so blessed us with, with big boys now, 30, 38 and 36, and, and we're so proud of them. But if you were to sit down and talk with Barbara and I, we would say to you, there are some things that we regret there were some things we wished we had done that we didn't, but we can't go back and do it over. So how do you deal with the regret? Some of you may be sitting here this morning and you're saying, Pastor Don, I regret my career choice. If I had it to do all over again, I would not be working where I am. I hate it. Every day is a burden to go into this job, and therefore I regret my career choice. And some of us can go back and look at our sins and our mistakes and our foolish choices involving our disobedience to God. And we say this morning, man, I regret that. I regret that. I regret the time, and you can go back in your memory. And something that came out very fresh to me, and, and it's not something I say with pride, it's something I say with humility and, and actual embarrassment, but, but God helped me work through that. We were pastoring in Jamestown in, in, the, in the late 90s, and we'd had a great service and uh, went from the church and stopped by the store. And going into the store, I saw this elderly gentleman walking, and he was bent over. He couldn't even raise his head. And he was bent over, and I was, I was on cloud nine, I was emotional high, and man, great things had happened in the service. And as I'm walking by this man, the Holy Spirit simply says, you need to pray for this guy. And I keep on walking. I get in my car, and I go home. That night, it begins to eat at me. The next day, it begins to eat at me. The following day, I couldn't turn loose of it. So I had to come to this place called repentance. And I had to say to God, God, I know you spoke to me, and I know that you 
wanted me to pray for this man, and I was disobedient to your will. God, I repent. I change. And I ask your forgiveness. And, and hopefully something good came out of that because I did say, God, and I pray that somebody that's more obedient than I was will come across his path and pray for this man, and he will receive a healing touch on his body. Now, that's not the only time, but as I was putting my sermon together, that's the time that, I, that, that came to my mind, a time when I was disobedient to God's will. Now, if I had not repented and asked forgiveness, knowing that Jesus forgives our sin, he forgives our disobedience, and he casts them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. That is a step of faith that we take because if I had not repented of that, that would have stayed with me for years. And needless to say, there have been times in my life where I've said, I've done behavior, acts, words, and deeds that I regretted. But I understand the concept that regret by itself will only become destructive. You see, because regret simply means I'm sorry for. There are people today who are incarcerated in our prisons who are sorry. But they're only sorry they got caught. That's why the recidivism rate is so high. 60-65% of these people return back to prison once they are released because nothing has changed in their behavior they just regret they got caught. Now, with that in mind, it's kind of a, a two-thought process this morning, and so let me encourage you to do this. If you are dealing with regrets of your past and you haven't been able to get over that and been able to deal with that, let me encourage you to do this. Mentally, will you take all of those regrets and put them in this mental garbage bag and tie it up? Because several years ago, I preached a message, and some may have thought it was sacrilegious, but I said, my message title was, Jesus is a garbage man. And the point of that was this, that when we bring our broken pieces and our hurts and our regrets and our sorrows to Jesus, we put them in this bag, he comes along and he takes them from us and removes them, and our past is clean and we have a good future. So I don't want us to move into 2013 living with regrets. Now let's transition a little bit and deal with this whole purpose of why there's sorrow and how sorrow can be productive and how it can actually benefit us. The Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church in Corinth, his first letter, he wrote that letter because the church wasn't doing very well. The church was probably not necessarily a typical church, but the church was dealing with marital issues. The church was dealing with immorality. The church was dealing with members filing lawsuits against members. The church was dealing with division. The church was having problem with the super saints. 
Some wanted Paul, some wanted Peter, some wanted Apollos. And because of all of this stuff was going on in the church, Paul had to write this letter, and it's a pretty tough letter. It, was, it wasn't one of these pull-the-punch letters, but it was like, this is what's happening, and this is what you need to do about it, and you need to start right now. Well, in the transition from that first letter to the second letter in Corinth, Paul had gotten a report back from his friend Titus. And Titus said, Paul said, things are better in the church. Things are, are going well and things are better. So Paul sets down and he writes a second letter to the church in Corinth. And here are the words that he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what he says to them. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Friends, this is the key today. For you and I to move out of 2012 and to move into the year 2013, we have to understand this. Sorrow over sin can be healthy because it can lead to repentance and forgiveness. Regret is only destructive. Let's look at the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. This is only my opinion, and I have really nothing to base it on because I do not know the heart of people. Only God knows that. But I would assume that there are people today who respond to salvation simply because they don't want to go to hell. There are people in our churches today around our country who respond to a call of salvation because they felt pressured or they felt obligated or they felt like it was the cool thing to do. This I found out. And I understand there are generational differences. And I understand we do not live in the world that I lived in in the late 50s. I understand that. I don't expect the same response, the same reaction. But let me just say this. I remember the days, and even myself at 12 years of age, when, when, when my children's worker came and said, Donnie, that was, that's what they called me, Donnie. My wife still does that every once in a while. When she said, would you like to come and ask Jesus into your heart? And I came and I knelt on the front row of the pew in the church. And I'm kneeling down there and she's praying with me and I'm crying. And then I stop and think, I don't know what sin I've committed. I'm 12 years old. The only thing that I could remember was I stole a candy bar when I was 10. And, and then the stealing of the candy bar led to a lie because when my mom found out, I told her I stole it from my dad. Sin will do that to you. That's the only thing I can remember, so I'm kneeling at the front of the pew, and I'm saying, oh, dear Jesus, forgive me for stealing the candy bar. That's all I knew to repent of. But tears were coming. And even at that young age, there was something about 
understanding that when I repented, and as I grew older, it became more evident and it became more important in my life. But let me personalize this. Whether you are here today or you're not here today, I understand this. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't, I'm not pointing a finger at you or you or you or up in the balcony or the galleries because here's the thing that I've learned, that when I view sin as God sees sin, it makes a difference and a change in my life. That's how important it is. So let's take a look. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Because here's the thing. You say, but Pastor Don, I, I'd, I'd like to deal with these regrets, and, but, but it's so painful. Yeah, but here's the neat thing about it. Sorrow, the pain of sorrow is only temporary. But repentance is eternal. The pain of sorrow only lasts as long as we come to Jesus and say, please forgive me of this and this and this and this, and I know that I have done wrong, and I know that my sins have nailed you to the cross, and I understand you gave your life for me, but, but Lord Jesus, I, re I for ask your forgiveness, and I repent of what I've done, and yes, it's painful, but it's only temporary. Repentance is eternal. Godly sorrow brings repentance, change of life, alteration of habits, and a renewed heart. But here's the thing, church. Sorrow is productive only when the past is converted into experience. If you allow it to be a part of your life today, it will become destructive. And I know that I know that I know that there's not a one person sitting in this building today that sometime or other has not experienced regret. Hopefully you've dealt with that. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir. Maybe I'm preaching a message that all of those that are not here should be here to hear. I don't think so. I preached this message to myself yesterday. It got rave reviews. <laughs> so I thought I'd come and try it out on you. But this is what happens. Worldly sorrow views pain as simply pain. Worldly sorrow often is pain that is self-inflicted. That means you beating yourself up <clears throat> over your past. You've got the regrets, you've got the sorrow, and you just keep saying, I'm not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And, and when John led us in worship today, John, you said the words that you sense there are people here that feel like that they have to earn God's love. And there's no way we can earn God's love. There's no way that we deserve what God has for us. But it's only by his grace that those things go and move into the past. And the worldly sorrow often is self-inflicted. You know why? Because when you have worldly sorrow, we're more concerned about our reputation. I'm really not sorry for what I've done, but 
I, I, I don't want my reputation to be tainted. Worldly sorrow simply means that I, I, I feel bad because I lost all my money on this gambling venture, on this, on this big deal that's supposed to make millions, and, and now I'm bankrupt, and, and I'm not really sorry for the, remember, I'm not sorry for the foolish choice I made. I'm just sorry because I lost my money. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow simply means that I feel embarrassment to my family and my friends. And we never view repentance as a valid answer to a poor choice. We never think about it. So how do we deal with this? Here's the application. Sometimes people respond to regret by trying to undo the consequences of their past in ways that are illegitimate. I take you back to the book of Numbers, and you're familiar with this story. The story of the Israelites when they had come out of Egypt, and if I understand the story correctly, and you've read it often as much as I have, Moses led them out of Egypt. Pharaoh's army was behind them. Mountains was on each side of them. The sea was in front of them. And probably two million people, approximate. And God directed them with fire by night and a cloud by day. They get to the Red Sea, and it parts, and everyone walks over on dry ground. And when they get to the other side, and Pharaoh's army comes swooping in, the waters close and drowns all of the army. Now, we're talking miracles here. Miracles. And yet, when they exit the Red Sea, and God brings them to the borders of Canaan, He says, this is the land that I have prepared for you. And it wasn't their idea, but the Lord said, send 12 spies into the land, and I want you to check out. I want to see if the cities are fortified. I want to see if there's actually milk and honey in the land. I want to see what kind of vegetation, what kind of soil. I want you to go scout out this land. And so the 12 spies went out for 40 days, and they checked out the land. They came back with the report. Ten of them said, yep, good soil. Cities are fortified. Milk and honey. Lots of good things. But, but, there are giants in the land. They're bigger than we are. How soon do we forget what God has done for us in the past meaning that he wants to do so much more for us in the future. What they should have said was, there are giants in the land, but God, you're the one that parted the Red Sea. God, you're the one that brought the cloud by day and the fire by night. God, you're the one that brought us out of Pharaoh's hand. God, because of these things, nothing can come against us because all things are possible with you. But no, they said, we will not go in. It was only Joshua and Caleb that said, we need to go in because with God, we can do it. But here's the thing. The Israelites were disobedient. They disobeyed what God's will for them was. 
They did not trust God's promises. They did not obey him and enter the promised land. What did they do? They panicked, they rebelled, and they refused to go in. Because of the act of disobedience, God passed judgment on them, and for 40 years, one year for every day, they scouted out the land. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, and he said, no one under the age, over the age of 20 will see Canaan. Joshua and Caleb was there. But the rest of you who disobeyed me, you're going to die in the desert. You're going to die right here and never see Canaan. So they understood their disobedience. And here's the thing. Sometimes people respond to regret by trying to undo the consequences of their past in ways that are illegitimate. Here's the point. They first obeyed, disobeyed God by not going in. And secondly, they disobeyed him by not staying out. And when this took place, when God said enter, they disobeyed. When he said stay out, they disobeyed. You see, regret becomes destructive when we try to undo our choices illegitimately. When we come to that place, maybe in the early years of our marriage, and we say, I regret marrying this person. And so therefore, I'm going to get a divorce. And I'm going to marry person number two. And we're with them for a while, and we say, you know, I regret marrying this person. So we get a divorce and marry person number three. What are we doing? We are trying to undo our past choices illegitimately and only digging ourselves in a hole that becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. Millions of children are in the arms of Jesus today because of those who in their wild passion of lust, whatever you want to put around it in context, got pregnant. And they didn't want the child. The child was an interruption, was an interference. The child represented responsibility. So therefore, they chose abortion. And we heard several months ago, we heard one of our ladies give her testimony of how God's grace and mercy and love comes and brings healing when we repent of those choices and those decisions. But the point I'm saying is this, it's a result of trying to undo your past illegitimately and it never works. So what do we do? Well, we understand that regret can lead to an attitude of hopelessness. And that's maybe where you're at, some of you today. Regret has got you to the place of saying, what's the use? I just give up. <clears throat> Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to be different. Nothing's going to happen that's going to make a, a difference in my life. I, I just give up. See, that's what regret will do. I've already messed up. I've destroyed God's plan for my life. I can nav never have anything more than second best. I just might as well be content where I am and live with it. Well, have you, 
I, I know you haven't had a personal conversation because all these people that I'm going to mention are dead, but read the story of Moses. And starting out, Moses was a murderer. He killed a man. He was a murderer. Yet God used him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Read the story of David, an adulterer, lusting on the neighbor's wife, having an affair with the neighbor's wife, and then developing a plot to have her husband killed. What an atrocity. And yet we open up the Scriptures and we see how God restored him to the throne. And most of you know the story of Saul. We know him as Paul, but before he was Paul, his name was Saul. Persecuted Christians, helped round them up, had them executed. In fact, the Scripture tells us that it was Saul who held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen. Now, that's a past. That's a past that you live with. Executed Christians brought them, rounded them up, put them in captivity, had them executed, held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And here is a man with a past, and he has a lot of regrets. So how do you deal with it? He dealt with it this way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, and, he, and, and we paraphrase it. Paul says this, I haven't reached perfection. I'm not really all I should be. But this one thing I do, forgetting the past and moving forward in Jesus Christ, a man that had a past, and perhaps most of these men that I've shared with you have had a past far more wicked than you and I. But God seen fit to use them. Why? Because they came to a point of repentance. Regret was destructive. Repentance is constructive. How about Peter? We know Peter. We read about him in Scripture. And one of the main things usually comes out is that Peter was the one that denied Jesus, denied him three times. And yet, when you read the whole story, you find the other side of the story that Jesus recommissioned him as an apostle. You see, I, we could go on and on and on of people, and that's why the Scripture says that God has given us these stories for examples. To say to you and I today, though no matter what is in our past, no matter what the regrets that we have lived, no matter how many foolish mistakes, how many sins we have committed, there is a forgiving, saving, loving God in heaven that wants to meet us at our point of need and pick up those trash bags of regrets and fling them as far away as he can, never to be remembered again. So we can go into 2013 with a fresh slate. You see, one of the things that we need to learn and need to understand, and maybe you do, but let me just remind you, 
Say, Pastor Don, I, I, don't, I really don't know. I, I've been confused about this whole thing. <clears throat> I thought when I got saved, I became a new creation. You did. Scripture says old things have passed away, all things have become new. But here's the thing, friends. Listen closely. When we come to Jesus Christ, our spirit is renewed. Our mind is not. That's why the Scripture admonishes us to renew our minds daily. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here is the quandary that we find ourselves in. Here I am, a new creation in Jesus, trying to live my life with the old mindset. And it's just not working. That's why it's important when pastor brings to you in the, in the next week or so, he's going to be sharing with you our fasting time and our time of prayer and our time of getting alone with God and our time of staying in God's word because that's the only thing that's going to renew our minds. And some of you, if you will listen closely to me this morning, a light bulb has just been turned on in your thinking because I've just shared with you that you cannot live a victorious life as a new believer with an old mindset. It would be no different, perhaps a poor analogy, but it would be no different than a man that divorced his wife, married a new wife, but still lived with the past of his old wife. And he was always saying to his new wife, oh, Susie cooked better than that. And Susie kept the house better than that. And I remember trips that Susie and I, how long do you think that's going to go on? We can't live a new life with an old mindset. It has to be renewed. And the only way it's going to be renewed is by the reading of God's Word. So my question to us today is this. How do we get past our past and how do we avoid being paralyzed by regret? And I close with these thoughts. The answer is this. We must change our theology. We have to change our theology. God knew his plan for your life would include sin, mistakes, and foolish choices. He knew that. He knew when he gave his son upon the cross and he knew that when you and I came to him and when we repented, he knew what the whole package consisted of. And he knows today that you and I, and I remember so many Sundays that pastor will often say, how many made a mistake in the last four weeks? How many in the last four days, the last four hours? Because we still live in this body of flesh. And God knows that when you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and my life, forgive me of my sin, God knows there's still going to be some sin and mistakes and foolish choices. Because we live in this body of flesh, this humanity, until Jesus comes back. But here's the thing. If the greatest sin in history... I think you would agree with, with me on this. 
If the greatest sin in history, which was the crucifixion of God's only Son, if that greatest sin in history was a part of God's sovereign plan, there is hope for you and me. We don't always understand it. We don't always agree with it. We don't always like it. But here's the thing, friends. God's plan for your life is not buried under the mistakes of your past. Can you say amen to that? I don't know about you, but I'm, that makes me excited. God's plan for my life is not buried beneath the sins of my past because those sins have been forgiven. Those regrets have been repented of. The repentance has come and the godly sorrow has come and new life has come and yet I have to daily renew my mind over and over and over again. And Paul says this in remind of the scripture that we just read. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, how many times have we come to the end of a year? And it could be a myriad of resolutions. We want to lose more weight. We want to read the Bible more. We want to pray more. We want to spend time with family more. We want to develop a hobby. We want to take on a project. We want to, we want to, we want to, we want to. And, and shortly into the future year, Father, those resolutions fall apart. That act of determining crumbles beneath us. But, Father, I pray for us today. I am so thankful that you remind us that we are your children, that we have been saved, that we have been cleansed, that our righteousness was nothing but filthy rags, but you've given us the righteousness of Almighty God. Father, I thank you this morning, and I hope that in the sound of my voice today that we have all heard we do not have to live with the regrets of the past. So, Father, right now, Father, I'm asking that all of us right now mentally do this mental exercise that we take those regrets, we repent of them, we ask forgiveness, we put them in the trash bag. And Jesus, in your loving, kind, and gentle way, will you please take it? from us and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. And Father, I pray that this coming year, should you tarry, this coming year will be a great year, will be an exciting year, a year filled with your promises and your blessings as we follow you. And Father, we thank you today that you remind us that you have a plan for our life and you understand that that plan involves mistakes and poor choices and you understand all of that. But that doesn't make us a second-rate citizen. That simply makes us a child of God 
that returns back to the Father and asks forgiveness and repents and accepts your love. So, Father, I pray today for this church. I pray today for its leadership. I pray today for this congregation that this coming year will hold the greatest blessings we've ever seen and can expect according to your will and according to your way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and have a very happy new year.